the fact that they put you together, you leave home thinking you're going to be on your own. No, no, no. Now I'm in a room with three other people and now we have got to become a unit and work together, um, you know, as, as this team to get through our daily lives. So you learn extremely quickly how to adapt, overcome. This episode of the NSP, I speak with Robin Hewlin. Robin hails from Labrador and is a retired Army colonel who is currently the Chief of Transformation for the RCMP. Inspired to serve at a young age, Robin had an impressive 30-year career in the military with a multitude of leadership appointments, several overseas missions, and a diverse array of jobs. She also has a deep background in working with the United States. She was serving in the U.S. during 9-11, and her last job in the military was helping the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, understand how to optimize its use of data to protect the continent. She provides an important and timely perspective on Canada's participation in this critical bilateral partnership as we've promised to invest billions in NORAD modernization over the next decade. Without further delay, here's my conversation with Robin Hewlin. Hey, Robin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Absolutely, Chris. So happy to be here. And you know what? We, uh, we talked previously, and, uh, and I didn't know that you, uh, you're from Labrador originally. And uh, so what are some of your family roots and origins? Oh, yeah. Yes. So, yeah, I was born and raised in uh, Labrador City, Newfoundland. And so that's on the mainland. The big land is what they call it, not the island. And uh, yeah, no, I mean, it was, you know, looking back and when I think about, you know, the military, um, that community was like a military community. It was very isolated. Uh, we were only 10,000 people and everybody worked for the mine. So my dad worked for the mine. And if you didn't work for the mine, then you were part of the support community. So it was a very little microcosm ecosystem um, of people. And then, you know, my dad actually served uh, three years um, in the, you know, in the army, you know, as an armored you know, trooper, uh, you know, back in, you know, in his early days when he was 17, but he only did three years and, and got out. And then he convinced my brother to kind of join the military, always convinced him to, to join the military. And then, you know, in, in 1988, you know, I went and saw him graduate at Cornwallis. And, you know, back then they bring the families through the barracks. They show you the film of, you know, what your sons and daughters have been through. And when you see them on parade and their uniform and so proud of themselves. And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, if my brother can do that, like certainly I can do that. Yeah. And then my dad said, hey, there's this thing, military college, and, you know, you get a free education because it was made very clear to me that my parents, you know, we didn't have the means for them for me to go to university that I would have to pay my way or, you know, through scholarships. And so that was it. 1988, grade eight, I had my sight set on, you know, applying to RMC and her CMR. And that's what I did. So not not a big history. But, um, yeah, that was, that was my fate in Labrador. And so in this, uh, you know, fall of 91, the recruiters come to the school and I get that paper, go home, get my parents to sign it, you know, and off I go to Goose Bay, you know, to apply. I'm only four foot 11 and a half, 
And back then, you needed to be four foot eleven and three quarters to join the military. So thank goodness I got a height waiver. I, I don't think those same standards apply today. Um, but uh, yeah, so so that, that that's my story of you know how I joined, and you know everybody has a story about what motivated them, you know, to to sign up and serve, and you know certainly my brother. Um, was the one who, you know, inspired me. Your brother was your motivation. What was his motivation then? I, I think for him, you know, he was, you know, uh, just just working, you know, for the city and, you know, in Labrador City. And it wasn't, you know, it, there wasn't a lot of future and prosperity there. And, you know, like I said, my dad really, you know, convinced him that the military could be a tremendous way of life. Um, you know, back then what motivated us was a job, a guaranteed job, um, stability, potential pensions. So those were the things, um, you know, that we valued, you know, 30 something years ago when you entered the workforce. Um, and so I think that finally appealed, you know, to my brother to go and do that. So was it a alien decision? I mean, coming out of a small, a small town, Canada, was it an alien decision to your friends and obviously not your family that, oh, I'm going to go and join the military. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, like people were were surprised, Um, you know, it definitely wasn't something there was probably one other. I don't know. You may know him, Jamie Hancock, his dad um, was a teacher in Labrador City and uh, Jamie joined. Um, And so, you know, we knew of him, you know, literally there was only a handful of a Sean Galbraith. I don't know if you ever came up against Sean Galbraith. No, I don't think so. So yeah, like literally there was like a few people, you know, in Labrador City who joined the military. So yeah. Yeah, So it seems like you're taking this big adventure, uh, leaving, leaving Labrador City. Was a lot of people who were heading off to university or did most people tend to stay in the community for, for most of their lives? So I think it was a real mix. I mean, there were some people, you know, who, who loved that hometown, who loved Labrador skidooing and going to the cabin, but that just wasn't what I wanted. Like for whatever reason, I had this adventurous spirit and I was like, no, I'm leaving, finishing high school. I'm going, I'm going out on my own and like, I'm going to have a life. So. I believe it was, you know, lots of people were going to university, but I think a lot of people, you know, made the pilgrimage back home to to Labrador as well. You talked about how you were motivated um, based on your brother's enrollment, um, but was that the only thing you looked at for in terms of options was going to a military college? No, no, because, you know, again, back then when you applied, you had to show that, you know, you got, uh, you got accepted into a few other universities. So, and because the application process, you know, was quite lengthy. So, you know, I did apply to Mount Allison in New Brunswick, Dalhousie, and then McMaster because you had to have letters of acceptance to show um, that you got into other universities. And so, you know, and I did make an acceptance into Mount Allison. And then it was like the first weekend in May, I was at a badminton tournament in Newfoundland in Deer Lake. And, you know, the recruiting center called me or called my parents and said they wanted to talk to me. And I got home and I called the next day and they said that I was, you know, accepted. So, so yeah, and, and there I was. So it's great that the recruiting center came, came out. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, I have conversations to this day with young Canadians or, um, you know, people who enrolled and it's, it's kind of miraculous sometimes that people even found out about military college because it doesn't get advertised well. And now in the internet age, I'm not sure how much actual face-to-face 
interaction takes place. It's more like you got to come to the recruiting center. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's a really, that's great to see that the, they took the time to come out to, to small town, town Canada. Yeah. Now you, you just sort of said that you were, uh, that you're, you were, you are four uh, eleven and change. <laughs> so what is it like uh, coming into an organization um, that is clearly uh, was clearly and probably still is struggling with the form fit and function of a, of equipment. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, most of the kit, um, I would say throughout my career was, you know, it was all adjustable. Um, so I, I don't feel like that was, that was a huge struggle or, uh, you know, there was definitely like some of the, Weapons that we had to carry, um, the extra large weapons were definitely not ideal for me to carry. Um, but you know, like the kit that I wore, the rucksack, you know, when I was on uh, summer training, uh, just as great, a, a couple of great sergeants, a couple of great staff, uh, on our, you know, on our course, you know, saw me and I'll never forget, you know, these couple of sergeants who took my rucksack and, you know, adjusted it all for me and made sure that, okay, you know, here you go, Miss Eulen, this is how we can adjust your pack and make sure that it fits. And I really, I mean, I, I kept that rucksack from like 1993 to the end of my career. It smelled, it was awful, <laughs> but it fit me like perfectly. And, um, so yeah, and, and the helmet. So and, and then, you know, they came up with the short, short barreled, uh, rifle. So, you know, those things helped, but, um, it definitely was an impediment. And I would say I, I equally saw, you know, my male counterpart struggle and, you know, there were times I passed them, um, you know, and it was, you know, I know a lot of times like on a March, they were like, well, Robin, the only reason we're still going is because you're still going. And so <laughs> I knew that sometimes I was a source of motivation. Um, but yeah, you just had to live in that hard for a bit. How was that transition from, from Labrador into the military, especially military college? I went to Collège Militaire Royal in Saint-Jean. So, you know, I was plucked out of Labrador City and, you know, picked up at the Montreal airport and off we went to Saint-Jean. And then, you know, I got introduced to, oh, two weeks French, two weeks English. Um, and, you know, I did a bit of French immersion um, in high school. And, you know, looking back, I mean, you know, it's amazing how ver uh, it's not only about verbal communication and instantly when you had Anglophones and Francophones come together at 17 and 18 years old and we didn't speak the common language, it was the gestures, it was the showing, it was, you know, the show and tell to someone. And my first roommate, roommate, Anik, was completely French and I was completely Anglo. And she took me off to the Canucks with my first hundred dollars and just threw everything in my basket that I needed. And we never spoke the entire time. So really, you know, communication is, is more than just, you know, speaking to each other. It can happen in so many other ways. And the fact that they put you together, you leave home thinking you're going to be on your own. No, no, no. Now I'm in a room with three other people and now we have got to become a unit and work together, um, you know, as, as this team to get through our daily lives. So you learn extremely quickly how to adapt, overcome, adjust like your behaviors and how you're interacting with each other. And that human interaction is heightened more than probably what you've ever experienced in your life is, you know, when you land at RMC. 
So you have that sort of military culture shock. How, how was the, you know, your first couple of years of being away from home, being in Quebec? Cause now you've got sort of a, a difference in, in culture, a difference in language. Yeah. I mean, how did you adjust to that and how did that sort of influence you in the future? I was so mentally prepared to go. I wanted this so bad at all costs. Mm. And so, you know, mentally there was no other option for me. So, um, I, I committed to, you know, to everything that the college, you know, demanded of you to the, you know, to the best of my ability to, to the maximum I could. And, you know, really, again, those, those hard moments, you know, you find friendships and then you, you know, the friendships is what, what keeps you going is what's lets you adapt is what, you know, and then being open to integrating and understanding like the Francophone, you know, community and learning how to speak French and all of that. You've got to be open-minded in those very, very demanding institutional kind of situations. So. Okay, so you, you spent some time at CMR and then you head off to RMC. And, yes. and what was your degree at RMC? So I did civil engineering um, okay. at RMC. So, so yeah, I was a, a signals officer in, you know, it was what I was selected to do was be a signals officer. You know, they really wanted me to be an electrical engineer, computer engineer, but I was like, yeah, at that time they would accept any engineer. So I was like, I'm going to do civil engineering. So it was good. I was going to say that uh, yeah, most most signals officers I know are computer or lec eng, but at the same time, I I took a completely different degree from my yeah. uh, my trade. So yeah. it was uh, less about less about the actual degree and more about the, the things that the degree taught you. Yeah. Uh, you know what what did you what did you take away from you know doing an engineering degree? Mm-hmm. Uh, what were the things you uh, that really helped you along the way from doing that academic stream? So I think it's really like the the problem solving and yes, you're solving problems, you know, in a mathematical engineering way, but working through, working through that problem solving skill is I think what showcases what an engineering degree can do. It gives you that problem solving skill. I am not an expert in civil engineering. I would have to go work, you know, in that trade, in that craft to, you know, to, to say that I'm an expert um, or to declare myself, but uh, just giving you that work ethic, that ability to, to manage time, prioritize, because you know the engineering degree is extremely demanding with all of the other electives, you know, that we had to do um, at RMC. And so it, it was really, you know, a test of your time commitment and understanding, you know, where you had to put those priorities and just learning from that, you know, was what you could kind of take and start integrating that as part of, you know, your work life when, when you left RMC. When you reflect back on your time at RMC, I mean, what are the, the things that stand out for you, whether it be the, the skills you learned or maybe some challenges that you, you faced? Um, you know, how, how do you, however many decades on now, do you look back on it and say, uh, you know, this is my, this was my experience? Looking back, I I really enjoyed my time um, at RMC. Um, I played varsity soccer, so that was like such an amazing outlet, um, you know, to have a different experience, to be part of that team. 
Um, and, and really, I think, you know, the whole military college experience, when I look back is, you know, is that lifelong friendship, right? I mean, uh, like, you know, I met Lisa Smith, you know, 22 June, 1992, when I signed my contract in St. John's, right. And we are, she's now the godmother of my child. Like those friendships, um, are really, you know, are really special. Yeah. And just, you know, the camaraderie, the friendship and a lot of confidence. I mean, when you look at it back in hindsight, I mean, we did a lot of training and I think you don't realize, um, like a simple small party tasks, you know, putting up a few modular tents, but that you're relying on that team to enable your success and learning that very early in your career, like how you have to have a team and, you know, you know, exploit their talent because you know, when, when you were in small party tasks or you went out on a patrol, you knew who could be your rifleman, you know, who could read the map. So understanding the potential of your teammates, you don't realize it back then when you're 19 years old, trying to get through a small party task, but it's like this little innate skill, uh, skill that maybe you can nurture through your career to, you know, to, to unlock the capacity of your team and know, you know, how to guide them and, and, you know, bring to bear all their talent that they have. So it resonates with me, what you, you said about confidence, because uh, I think that that is something that um, whether people do overtly or, or not, everybody struggles with confidence in their ability to do something new or, mm-hmm. or, or something uncertain. And, uh, and, and I agree. I think it's a, it was an environment where you were, you didn't have a choice. Yeah. You, you had to, you had to sort of rise to the occasion. And, and I think it becomes an incredibly uh, formative experience for those who, uh, who make their way through the, the system. Now, after you finished military college as a signals officer, what did sort of the next few years look like when you were commissioned service, mm-hmm. moving on as a junior officer? Yeah, yeah. So I got my uh, my first posting was to uh, Leitrim, you know, back here, you know, in Ottawa. And they're the, you know, the signals intelligence arm, you know, of the military. I, I was, a you know, a, a young officer uh, working a bit of shift work and just understanding, like, the real operational task of that unit. And then I wasn't there, you know, a year and I got deployed, um, to Bosnia to, so it was, you know, a a tremendous, you know, opportunity to be the junior officer to deploy to Bosnia, to be the electronic warfare, you know, troop commander, um, for the third battalion, uh, who were deploying over there. So, you know, the first time, you know, having a team of 16 people and being, char- being, you know, leading moms and dads and people with children, um, you know, in Bosnia and, you know, here's little me, 24 years old and uh, just, but, but a great, you know, learning um, experience, you know, and of course, you know, that was my first, you know, exposure to, uh, you know, a war torn country, a country who had been through a war and probably what was really sad was, you know, when you go to Sarajevo and, you know, Olympic village, you know, was, was destroyed. Right. And the Olympics is so, you know, it's profound, you know, it's a huge worldwide event and, you know, just seeing that kind of destroyed at the hands of war, you know, a lot, a lot of huge takeaways, you know, being a young officer over there. You were motivated by your your experience with your brother's basic training. Did you get a sense at that time that uh, going to a place like Bosnia was something you really wanted to do to make a difference, or did you actually have to be 
in that place to then realize um, the importance of service and, and maybe your role in that? So I, I think, you know, the desire to join, the desire to serve beyond yourself, uh, you know, stems from somewhere. But when you go to an actual war-torn country, I think that really solidifies and, you know, reinforces why why you do that. When strangers are happy to see you, when strangers, um, when you know you are making, you know, a difference or having an impact, a positive impact, you know, on, on someone's life or their livelihood, right? It was their livelihood that was taken, that was, you know, at risk and, you know, that was destroyed and you don't experience that every day. Um, and very few people, unless there's an exceptional personal circumstance, you know, experience the destruction of a livelihood. So this is the reason why, this is the reason why you, you know, you serve and you see it in movies. And I think a lot of like movies probably influence me as well. Um, but when you see it for real, you know, it has an impact. It's interesting you make the comment about the movies because I've, I've spoken to a number of people on the podcast and the influence of pop culture um, has been mentioned in, on more than one occasion, yeah. right? So whether it be pop culture post-World War II or pop culture post-Vietnam, uh, you, you name it. So that uh, mm-hmm. seems to be a common theme yeah. of that, the influence that, that media has on people's sort of vision of the world and the future. Yeah. 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 So did you feel like you made a, you made a difference at the end of your, your tour in Bosnia? Um, so I would say like, and, and I was, you know, I was thinking about this. And when I think about the role of our unit over there, um, I think we had an impact more with the battalion and the battalion who um, were interacting with the local community. That's, you know, so it was an inherent. Did did Robin Eulen make an impact? I would say no. But did our team contributions to the battalion in enabling their mission and working with people every day in Bosnia, that was the impact. And some of our soldiers, you know, at you know, were, you know, embedded, you know, with the battalion and they saw the impact, you know, that that they made. So supporting them, being part of that, leading them, helping them, guiding them, being a part of it, making them feel valued was, was, I think the impact. Um, did I impact the life of a Bosnian? I, I, I I don't know. And I I would leave that up to third battalion to make that assessment. Yeah. That's, that's an important thing. I think for listeners to understand is, you know, what Robin's talking about is, um, back in, Back in those days in, in the Balkans, the, the people who primarily interacted with the, um, with the affected local population were probably more infantry, mm-hmm. armored. Yep. And then those, those people are then supported by uh, different trades like the ones that Robin and I were, were a part of. So whether it be the communications trade or the engineering trade, so there may not be as much direct contact and uh, that's a that's a great sort of segue about uh, you know life is not being maybe a trade that's always in the limelight mm-hmm. and and did you was that something that you came to understand quickly that you know being in a and I don't say supporting in a pejorative way because that's very much was my my trade as well but did you understand that going in or did, was Bosnia that moment where you sort of went oh okay I'm I am that sort of one step removed mm-hmm. and that and that's okay. 
totally. um, because you can still deliver excellence in that way. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, I remember, you know, going over there and you're committed, right? You are in it. You are committed. You live it every single day. You know, yes, you get like a small break in between it, but you know, when, when you're on a deployment like that, like, you know, like you are, you are living it every day and, um, it's, it's incredible. And then I just remember, you know, when I had to leave, I got up one morning, I'm in Velika Kladusa. We, that's in Bosnia. Then we take a bus to Zagreb, Croatia. I get on a service flight home to Ottawa. My best friends meets me at the airport and we go to Quiznos on Bank Street and I have Quiznos and I'm just like, Oh my God. And I had this, you know, this light bulb of I'm so replaceable. I was there for seven months. I loved it, committed. And then I handed over to somebody and within less than like, you know, 12 hours, I'm completely replaceable. And I think like in that moment, and you know, that is definitely something that I've carried throughout my career to give me perspective. Like no matter what job I had after that, you know, the next team was going to do the same thing that I did and they were going to live the same thing. And then they were going to get up one morning and come home to Canada and they're going to be replaced. And so that gives you really good perspective on, um, where you are, like not, not pecking order, but just how you, you value and how you see your work life, you know, moving forward. Um, and I think that gave me really good perspective, you know, on, on work life, you know, as I went through my career and no matter what job I got afterwards, I was like, well, this is temp- not temporary, but there's, there's a timeline on this. Like there's, there's a time phase on this. And then after that, I'm going to move on to something else. And so I can commit a hundred percent every single time and know that just, you know, leave it better and just move on to something. seems really mature for that point in your career. Cause my, my sense is a lot of people would probably look at that, I, how replaceable I am as maybe look at it from a different perspective. So that, I mean, that's incredible that at that point you were able to sort of yeah. wrap your mind around it. And then that informed you in the future because it probably grounded you whenever things were changing or, you know, things are uncertain allowed you to sort of just say, yeah, okay. No, yeah. No problem. Yeah. I, I don't know for whatever, for whatever reason that was, you know, and if you had to talk to me 15, 20 years ago, I probably would have said that the most profound impact that Bosnia had on me was, you know, like ripping off the Band-Aid, right? It was. So you get back from Bosnia and what's the next couple of years look like? What do you, you move into in your yeah. your next job? Yeah. So got back from there and again, I wasn't long uh, back in Canada and, you know, an incredible opportunity came up for me to go on uh, a U.S. exchange posting uh, down, obviously, to the United States at National Security Agency at Fort Meade, Maryland. Um, and so again, that was to be part of, you know, that SIGINT enterprise, that partnership between the United States, um, and Canada. And so, yeah, so I moved down there in, uh, March of 2001. And so, well, we all know what happens then. I was living down there before 9-11, during 9-11 and after 9-11. And to, to be part of that, um, in those moments, you know, was, you know, was extremely profound. And, you know, because of that experience, you know, I have a huge affinity, um, you know, for America uh, that will never, you know, th- that will never die, that will never go away uh, being down there during that time. So it was, yeah, extremely profound. 
Now, Robin, I, I think a lot of people listening may not have any idea about uh, what an exchange officer is and why we would even send Canadian military officers to other countries. Can you give us a sense of why that's important? Yeah, absolutely. So there's different, you know, levels uh, or there's different programs for, you know, Canadian forces officers, you know, to go on exchange postings uh, with other countries. Our biggest one, of course, is with the United States. And if you go on an exchange, normally means it's a one-for-one exchange. So I was in an exchange program, so there's a memorandum of understanding um, at that time, you know, uh, with the United States Navy and um, with the Canadian Forces for you know, 50, you know, whatever, 50 plus of us to be down in America embedded throughout the NSA SIGINT enterprise. And then the same is reciprocated on the Canadian side where there are U.S. Um, forces here in Canada, mostly, you know, at, at Leitrim um, and that, which is like the reciprocal SIGINT enterprise. Okay. Um, you know, the value of that, you know, is is incredible. I mean, the access, the trust, understanding, you know, the resources, what they put behind, you know, what they commit to in regards to national security and, you know, their culture of national security is admirable. And it was like one of the the biggest things I took away from being down there at NSA and how they resourced it. And so, again, I was very young in my career but just seeing like the magnitude of these enterprises rallying around, you know, an issue, um, you know, gives you a perspective um, that you can bring back to Canada and then apply that, you know, back here. We are valued. I've done two postings to America and our presence, our partnerships, what we give, what we provide, we bring a level of expertise and insight that, you know, the Americans, from my experience, you know, value what we have access to, to, you know, to their huge enterprise, you know, is, is immense. And, you know, dare I say, you know, we, we, we probably gain more. The tails probably, the, the scales probably tip in our favor a little more from, from what we get um, out, out of that, you know, incredible relationship with the U S. Yeah. It's, I think like any relationship, I mean, these are things that are really critical to maintain, uh, and, and to value, uh, hence the exchange officers are really important in sending the right people down there. Maybe sort of one last question on, on that posting. I mean, what was, I guess, what was it like just sort of living in the U.S., you know, to and through 9-11? So nothing really to do with the work, but just being amongst yeah. the population that has been, you know, that has gone through that sort of traumatic event. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, we all remember, you know, where we were. And so, so two things profound uh, with that is it is a little work-related because I would say that, when I went back to work, so 9-11 for us happened on a Tuesday and then Thursday we went back into work and it was probably the first time in my life that I didn't want to be a Canadian going into work at, at NSA that day. Mm, I, you know, I'm, you already said I'm already four foot 11 and I made myself as small as I could be because, you know, um, you know, my team, the colleagues, the sentiment was hurt frustration, anger, 
for all the right reasons, for all the right reasons. And so that first day that we went back into work, I was just very quiet, very small, and just had to let them grieve. In regards to outside of work? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know where you were living, if you were yeah. living in a community, if you were part of that community, yeah. um, how how they, you saw maybe your neighbors um, or your, uh, your U.S. friends, you know, dealing with this. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So in my community, so I, I did live in, in Annapolis down there, which is, you know, where the United States Naval Academy is on the water. Beautiful. And my network was mostly military. So my friends were military. My U.S. friends were all military. Um, and so, yeah, they were just, you know, just, just all, just all very, just dealing, you know, with what had happened. But when America, I would say, you know, puts its might around something, like they're going to get it done. And I think that's what I saw them do was put their might around rallying, get that coalition and to, you know, to, to respond uh, to 9-11 and seeing that happen for real around me, uh, the U.S. Navy you know, you know, projecting power forward back then in the early 2000s, right? You know, like that forward projection of power. Mm -hmm. I don't think you really understand that until you get on a U.S. aircraft carrier and see the power that a U.S. aircraft carrier has. And so to experience that, to see that in those, in those kind of contexts and light was, you know, was amazing. Like such an enriching experience. Again, like at so young um, in my career at that time. So now you've, if I can just quickly recap, so you, you've come out of Labrador, you go to military college, you come out of military college, your first posting, you get to Bosnia, come back from Bosnia quickly. You're down to the, the NSA in the U S I, I mean, was this the sort of the pace of life that you were, you were looking for? How did you balance the the work-life piece, was that important to you? Because I think a lot of people can probably go, okay, you're, you're in your mid-20s or whatever now, and you've already lived and had these experiences that most people don't in an entire lifetime. Was that exactly what you wanted, or was this something that the pace was a bit of a surprise? It was, it was what I wanted. I didn't know what I wanted, but this was feeding everything in me. Like, I, I was loving it. I was thriving, I feel like, you know, I like... I don't want to be surviving. Like I want to be thriving every day in my life. And, um, I felt like during all of the, you know, all, all of that time in my career, you know, I, I was thriving and I was definitely thriving down there and I knew nothing else and was just happy to, to live it, you know, every day and just, yeah. Wow. Like I, when, when you say it like that, I don't realize what was kind of packed in, in like my first eight years of my career, but very, very grateful and yeah, just thriving in those moments. I, I didn't see anything negative. I was extremely happy and, um, yeah, just, just living my best life. So. Yeah. You, you didn't see it as any form of a sacrifice, uh, in, in that way. No, I, I, I never saw it as, as a sacrifice. Um, you know, maybe, you know, later in my career, Walt, it, it probably was a sacrifice in, in that moment. I wanted to do it, but I have zero regret. You know what I mean? Like I don't regret anything that, that I did in my career and yes, sacrifices were made along the way. Um, but it was what I wanted to do, you know, in that moment. And I, and I don't have any regrets, um, you know, for that. 
Um, you know, probably one area, you know, that I did make a sacrifice, but I was, you know, very, very supportive was, so I had my little boy really late in life, uh, you know, near the end of my, my career, you know, at 40 and, you know, probably, you know, the sacrifice I made back then was, you know, going, going and taking command of a unit, you know, two months after I had my child. But I mean, I had a wonderful husband who, you know, took over those duties and, you know, living close to base, I could make it work and for nursing and all of that. But so I think that was a sacrifice, but do I, I don't, but I don't regret it, but it was, it was still a sacrifice. You just sometimes need, need need to make some of those sacrifices, and and that's okay. It's not a bad thing to make a sacrifice. You know, in that moment, again, it was what I wanted to do, and I, I don't I don't have any regrets about doing. I think I was very lucky to have been able to make that sacrifice with an amazing partner, husband. You know, to help me in that moment to succeed both in my career and in our family life. So, hmm. I think that's a great sort of. Uh, perspective on on things and it may be alien to a number of, of people listening that um, haven't necessarily been in a situation with sort of that level of service and that level of commitment how how motivating that is and it doesn't necessarily feel like a sacrifice it feels like the things you're trying to achieve the things that you want to do and as you sort of said at the, the start I mean how how mentally focused you are on on that that goal of mm-hmm. Finishing military college, getting into into service, and you know filling filling that role in uh, in in the military. I think that's a that's a very that's a very important perspective for people to to understand. Perhaps we can switch gears a little bit and uh, and move to to Afghanistan and give you know people at home a bit of a, a sense of your uh, what you did in Afghanistan and and that mission and maybe how it was different from, from your Bosnia experience. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So back from America and landed in Kingston at the joint signal regiment, um, you know, which is a communications and, uh, you know, support, uh, unit, uh, for the Canadian forces. And during that time, you know, the army was full blown committed to, you know, Afghanistan and not just the army, like the entire Canadian forces, uh, was committed to that. And then there was the announcement that, you know, uh, now retired General Assad was going to lead um, one of the major sectors over there in Afghanistan. And now there would be, a, a, you know, a strong Canadian contingent uh, to support him. And, you know, as the mission evolved, you know, and different coalitions came together uh, for, for this uh, part of the mission, uh, Regional Command South, it was a tri-national, so it was, it was between Canada, Canada uh, a partnership between Canada, the UK, and the Netherlands. So a trilateral partnership is what we had. And so for that mission, I was selected to be the commanding officer of the um, Signal Squadron. And the Signal Squadron at that time provides all of the IT um, information technology, all of the communication support uh, to that headquarters and and beyond to the to to the region, and we also provide the real life support. And you know, if you've ever you know, for those who have deployed or you know leave your home, you know that real life support your laundry, your car, your truck, your bedding, your 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 evolutions, your toilets, your food is you know your am like that means a lot. So. 
we were a, a trilateral squadron there. And so it was, again, an, another incredible opportunity where I had a troop of Canadian soldiers, I had a troop of British soldiers, and I had a troop of Dutch soldiers. And so we were there. Uh, my deployment was, you know, about 10 months over there supporting General Lassard's headquarters for the entire time. So again, we were um, more or less inside the wire with, so so inside the Kandahar airfield. Um, we did have teams at the different areas um, within, uh, within the Kandahar province or within regional command south. And yeah, so we extended, you know, that network of communications, um, you know, to, to the various other countries that were supporting the mission at that time. What were your additional impressions about Afghanistan vice Bosnia? I mean, I think of Bosnia, like they had a livelihood and they were still, you know, like we saw things that were familiar to a Canadian landscape. Like their buildings were a little different. Their haystacks looked different, but they still had infrastructure and a livelihood. Um, I would say in Afghanistan, seeing a culture that has not truly evolved was probably more challenging, you know, to see. I mean, the landscape was harsh, you know, to kind of see some of those realities of, you know, that there is not a lot of livelihood to be had, I Mm. think was probably one of the biggest differences. What was it like having the opportunity to see a a Canadian in charge of something so important? Because it doesn't happen very often. um, And you were... Uh, a prominent uh, in a prominent position in the headquarters. So, did you have an opportunity to see uh, Mark Lassard uh, in action and, and, and witness sort of Canadian leadership in such a, an important time in that mission? Yes, um, yeah. So, absolutely in in that role, you know, absolutely being part of his um, you know command team, his senior staff team, you know, attending, you know, the daily battle rhythm updates, you know, I definitely got to see, you know, how he interacted with his staff, um, how he aligned with his commanders, um, and how he really used, you know, the power of influence in a very good way. Um, and I learned from him and, and, you know, he would say in regional command South at that time, you know, there was 22,000, um, soldiers. Now he only had command of, you can't, can't quote me on this cause I can't remember the numbers of 2008, but I don't know. Did he have command of, I don't know, nine or 12,000 soldiers, but influence over 22,000. And so really learning the good powers of influence and, and how to get after the mission. I think I learned from him. And then following, you know, our tour together there, I then became his direct staff officer for about a year and a half. And then I was back and forth with him, not only in Afghanistan, but with other mission commanders um, around the world and, you know, saw him, you know, interact and, you know, alignment and consensus, right? Like aligning is what I really learned from him, like Mm -hmm. alignment and then something else is consensus. And consensus isn't always agreeing. Consensus means there's a giving and taking. And sometimes we forget that. But to have consensus within a mission or within an objective, there's a point when someone is giving and someone has a take. In a very defined moment, it's not enduring. So understanding that and seeing how, um, you know, watching him and observing him, 
you know, navigate through some very, very, very demanding scenarios. Um, yeah, was impressive. So you got a chance to work with him in deployed, and then when you came back, uh, now you you so you come back to Canada. You go into that headquarters immediately with General Assad. So we had about uh, six months together where, oh, like, you know, when he came back from, when we came back from our tour, we took a bit of leave. And then he had about five months where we just did like a professional, like road show and, right. you know, where Sharing we. Sharing like yeah. lessons and. Yes, yeah. yes. And then he got command of Canadian Expeditionary Forces Command. Um, so we were together for those for. Uh, for those four or five months afterwards. And then we went to, yeah, to CEFCOM okay. um, together. You're in CEFCOM. You're working with General Assad. Uh, the, but you moved to NORAD at some point. How, how much further along was that, that you ended up down in NORAD? Yeah. So that was almost like nine years later. Okay. Yeah. So I did, you know, time at, with army training and then commanded 21 electronic warfare regiment and then came to the mothership of uh, information management group <laughs> in Ottawa. Oh no, you know, I'm a, no, I did a, uh, I was the executive assistant to General Bose as well, back at at Canadian Joint okay. Operations Command. So yeah, another incredible experience. You know, this opportunity to see another great general, you know, in action, um, you know, for the Canadian forces. So. Yeah. Back and forth, Ottawa, Kingston, yeah. you know, and doing, doing that. And then you have an opportunity to go to, to NORAD and maybe yeah. you can give a, a quick explanation of what NORAD is for yes. people listening. Yes. Yeah. So NORAD, North American Aerospace Defense Command, and we don't only track Santa now and everybody has seen that from the balloons. It's a great tracker. <laughs> it's a great tracker. And it's, uh, I, I mean... It's it's very interesting that that story, uh, but but yeah. So NORAD, um, you know, is a binational command, and there's, you know, I say that word binational. It may not mean a whole lot, but it it truly is. It is the only one of the only binational. So we have two countries, U.S. again and Canada, who have committed to standing up a binational command for the def- for the aerospace warning control and defense of North America. You know, three huge missions. When you think about all of the aircraft, you know, the the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of now now air objects, airborne objects. It's no longer just aircraft. We have way more airborne objects, you know, in our environment that we need to understand and understand, you know, the potential threats or, or not. Um, are you saying airborne objects? You're talking about aircraft. You'd be talking about drones. Drones, yeah. You could be talking man-made, about, uh, like right. Yes, weather weather balloons. I say in air quotes, and uh, yeah, a- absolutely. Yeah. All of these airborne objects now are cluttering and giving an, another level of complexity to aerospace warning control and defense. Because I imagine NORAD was originally designed, probably originally for aircraft, and right. maybe missiles, right? Yes. And so now. When you broaden the number of things you're looking at, that, yeah. as yeah. you said, makes it 
more complex. Yeah. Yeah. And, and NORAD, because, you know, we'll go back to 9-11 and this was, you know, this will, will tie it together. Um, so NORAD, when it first stood up in the sixties or maybe it was 1958, again, don't quote me on these dates, look them up, Google them. I will put them in the show notes, <laughs> history of NORAD. Um, you know, stood up, it's like 65 year partnership right now. Um, but it, you know, it was to protect the skies. Their their original focus and you know operational framework was for aircraft coming towards North America, and then nine eleven happened, and you know now we're inside of North America. So the mission had to evolve so that okay. we were tracking aircraft with inside North America as well, because you know it's all threats foreign and domestic. I, you know, I hadn't even thought about that. Yes. So that it, nuance. that, that nuance. So it changed the trajectory or just evolved the mission more for that look in as well as looking out of, of, you know, of our boundaries of North America. So, so important. Like the mission is, is so important. It's every day, you know, 365, 24, seven, there's an operations center, and, you know, multiple that are, you know, making sure that, you know, our skies are safe. So what job did you go down there to do? Was it another exchange officer job? Yeah. So I, I went down, my husband um, is Air Force. And so he got uh, selected uh, to go down on the exchange posting. Um, and um, I was a plus one, but I feel like so the Canadian forces... <laughs> Uh, did an incredible thing and accommodated me and, you know, sent me down there with my husband uh, so that I could work and NORAD, you know, accepted it, getting an additional officer, the Canadian army accepted letting me go. And I'm so grateful, but you know, I, I hit the plus one jackpot down there and, you know, landed, you know, on this incredible, you know, opportunity, um, which is now again, giving me, you know, the, the trajectory into my next career here. So, you know, that's how, you know, we, we got down to Nora. I was, my husband was posted and I was the plus one who got accommodated and just landed on an incredible opportunity down there. So. So what was that incredible <laughs> plus one opportunity that you, you hit the jackpot on? Yeah. So it was, you know, uh, it was called this Pathfinder initiative and yes, there's lots of Pathfinder, um, initiatives out there. I know it's, it's a common term, but in essence, you know, uh, the NORAD commander um, was a believer in technology. He believed that we could um, leverage technology to better enable or enhance his decision-making space. And he wanted a small team to get after that for him because you can appreciate that when there is a potential air threat, the time to decide to scramble a response to a potential air threat is, is quick. And, you know, a fast twitch mission is, you know, what they often refer to it down there. And so, you know, as we are using a lot of manual processes, it's just the nature of the beast. It's just the way we've evolved. There is a better way that, you know, we can leverage technology to automate some of those processes to increase and open up his decision space. And, you know, while we were down there, you know, the NORAD CIO was charged with solving this problem. Here's a problem I have. He said, go after it and try to solve it. So um, 
she, with all of her might, you know, and with the backing of a four-star general, created a small team, and I became a plus one on that team, later led that team um, to get after really, you know, leveraging, you know, digital tools and technology to, you know, shift that decision space left for the commander. Um, so that's what we did. So really learning about a digital transformation from a data, from an automation, from a cloud, from a machine learning to a user experience and what that all means, all encompassing together. And when we reflect now and think about the, the digital touch, the digital era, the digital transformations that are happening all around us, like I had no idea in 2019 and we're only talking four years later mm. again, what an incredible opportunity it would be. And basically it would be the stepping stone for my next you know, career state. So, so when you say shift left, you're, you're talking about giving that decision maker as much time as possible to make that decision. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Giving, giving, giving them more time. Where do you even start to solve a problem that big? <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Well, first, it's really, I think, understanding the decision process. So technology is really good. But when you think about, it's only one piece of it is what I should say. So when you think about a digital transformation, a digital solution, there's normally a process behind everything. And you really got to unpack that process because within that process, we have people and policies in order to, and then there's technology, but in order to accelerate getting after that solution, you need to understand what some of those challenges or roadblocks are within that, uh, within that process, that end to end process. So we were able to unpack that, understand there were some, you know, policy process things that we could, you know, automate. And then, you know, we just started looking at it from end to end and just chipping at it, you know, piece by piece. And I think too, because we were after like solving a problem, you know, when you start with a digital transformation, I mean, you can't just change the entire network overnight. So starting with a problem that was finite, that had a dedicated process already, and that we had tremendous, but we had tremendous control of the resources and people with, within that, within that process and mm. within that framework. So we could have a lot of influence on how we wanted to accelerate and evolve it. And then, you know, we really needed some, you know, technical expertise. So, you know, we were able to harvest, you know, some technical expertise from industry. Um, I would offer again that I saw, uh, you know, the, the team down there really financial ninjas at working with contracts to, to enable that. And then probably what was the accelerator of, of this program was working with defense innovation unit, mm -hmm. which is, you know, again, you can Google it an incredible, um, resource that, you know, the department of defense and the U S government has. And so what that means is defense innovation unit, um, they are there to broker. So DOD, so anybody in the Department of Defense, Army, Air Force, Navy, uh, Marine Corps, if they have digital problems or problems that they want solved, they make a proposal, a two-page, I say again, a two-page proposal <laughs> to Defense Innovation Unit to help solve, build a prototype to get after that problem. And then the beauty of, 
of Defense Innovation Unit is that they are, they are your broker to Silicon Valley. So they go out, you know, shop around your two-page problem to Silicon Valley. Then they come back with proposals. It's either a 10-page point paper or a 15-page PowerPoint to offer a solution. And that's what we did. So we were able to put out a two-page problem statement. We had Silicon Valley, uh, you know, we solicited like 54 potential uh, uh, solutions to our, to our problem. You know, we, we, we scored them, rated them against, you know, certain criteria performance thresholds that we needed to achieve, um, you know, big data outcomes. And then, yeah, so they were the real catalysts to, to getting us started. I can't see how this is not achievable in Canada. I think we have a great tech sector. Mm-hmm. We have a, a strong industrial base. I mean, is there any reason why this is something that can't be sort of mirrored back home? There's, there's no reason why it cannot. Right. Um, I, I believe in it. Like the whole Waterloo tech corridor, we, we need to be exploiting that. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we showcase immigration to bring in a tremendous amount of tech talent all over the world. And I agree, we need, we need access to it. So I'm not sure what, what program <laughs> or policy framework that can be leveraged, um, to help us, to help us get there. Um, but it's definitely something that we need to really think about, you know, moving forward, like a DIU North. Why should Canadians care about NORAD? Why should they care about having a DIU North Mm -hmm. or something like that? Yeah. So I'm going to go back to maybe a little bit in our earlier conversations when we talk about the partnerships and what we gain more from them. And the fact that the U.S. has this in place, the fact that we were a binational command with NORAD was, you know, the glide path that we needed to be fast followers, they are offering it. They are delivering us. They are going to, you know, deliver that Pathfinder solution um, to the Royal Canadian Air Force, to the CAF. We are partners in it. So it, it showcases that this, you know, relationship with the U.S. can be an accelerator or a catalyst for us. We don't need to start over from the beginning. They they want to help us accelerate and, and, and bring us to, to their level. So, we can be a tremendous fast follower in this space and, you know, the partnerships with NORAD and exchange postings, the military to military relationship is strong, is, you know, is extremely strong. And it's something, you know, we, we could have a start state. Um, we don't need to start over. The Americans will, will help us to get there. A tremendous catalyst. So. So how long were you down in Colorado Springs? Three years. So we came back one year ago, like last summer. Okay. Yeah. And you came back and you re- you initiated your retirement while you were down in Colorado Springs? Uh, when I arrived back in Canada. So I had kind of gave indications that I've, you know, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do and, you know, the the, the final job that I landed on um, coming back was just not, would not be a job that I would be thriving in anymore. And so I, I knew that, that, that job couldn't give me what I needed. So, um, so I made my decision to retire, you know, after we got back to Canada, um, and just 
arrived here, had a few conversations, and it just solidified my decision. And probably what, you know, part of that decision, when you think about transition, you know, from the military retiring, you know, I had done 30 years, really enjoyed it, as you can probably hear in my voice, and then realizing, you know, this, these amazing skills that I got down in this Pathfinder, and that probably moving leveraging those skills to now really start harnessing some expertise in this environment. And so that's where I wanted to move to transition was I have some skills. Now let me hone them and let me evolve them to some level of more expertise. And so that's what I was really looking for um, was to, and, and I kind of found it right now uh, being the chief transformation officer in the RCMP with a focus on digital transformation. It's a, this is another incredible opportunity <laughs> to, you know, develop that expertise, you know, based on the skills. And I'm so grateful to the CAF for my time in NORAD. I wouldn't be in this position had I not had this experience. So, so was that the the main draw? Was the the continuing the the skills and the education on the digital front? Was there was it also appealing that it was it was continuing to serve with another sort of national security or another national organization? Did that that come into your calculus at all, or was it really driven by the the actual job itself? I, I would be honest and say it was really like I wanted to do something in that digital transformation space and landing in the RCMP. I always say it's been a real soft landing into an organization that's focused on you know policing, national security. Um, so a soft landing again into a uniform, non-uniformed, hierarchical organization where I'm familiar with you know um, that kind of culture. So, but it was the digital transformation that that really intrigued me. And again, it's just been a, a super bonus that I'm able to do that for a distinguished organization like the RCMP. So after 30 years of service, I mean, you reflect back on that. What did your service mean to you? It's meant so much. I mean, you know, the first 30 years of my career being part of the Canadian Army um, has has just taught me so much. It gave me, you know, an enriching life, um, friendships, um, you know, my family that I'm so grateful for, um, you know, and it really made me understand again, you know, some, some of not the hard lessons, but you know, it really is about, you know, mind over matter. Um, you know, again, I go back to being four foot 11 and you, Chris, you're sitting here in front of me. Um, I would say that, you know, a 15 kilometer rucksack march was way easier for you than me. But, you know, it, it really is living in that hard sometimes. And I reflect back on you have to live in the hard because the hard isn't forever. Um, and so many people have done it before us and people will, will do it after us. So, you know, living in the hard is is temporary. And when you live in that hard, you know, that's how you build that resilience and that mind over matter. And through every experience from the first time I donned the PT shorts at CMR and you go out on a run or something like it, it has always been that, you know, for other Canadians, you know, I know that the two generations behind us, you know, the, you know, the millennials and the Gen Z's, they're craving social impact and you can have an impact by serving beyond yourself. And, you know, like, that, that social impact, we may think of it as TikTok and Instagram and Snapchat, 
but you can have a social impact that reaches far beyond, you know, your iPhone by, you know, signing up to serve, do it. And you don't have to do it forever. Like probably we did that cause that was our culture. That's my culture. Sign up and do it and get your pension. Um, I loved every minute of it, but you can also, you know, have an impact, um, you know, and you can be motivated and, and, you know, contribute and, you know, do good for society and, and, and beyond. Um, so, yeah. And then finally, you know, as I was, you know, thinking about this is really, and I probably mentioned it a few times is, you know, impact. And when I look back, I think about, you know, all the people who've had an impact on me, how I have responded to those impacts and, you know, Maybe I've had a little impact on a few people along the way, but that's not as important as the impact that so many people have had on me and how I have taken all of those experience and all those people and, you know, been able to, you know, thrive in a 30 year career with the Canadian army. Did you have mentors along the way? That's something we didn't really touch on, but it's something I, I think is really important because Nobody does it alone. No, um, but yeah. how was how was that for you? Was it something you had to actively seek? Was it always available to you? Yeah. So I, I would say yes again. And when I when I reflect back on my my career, right from you know right right from the moment that you know I landed in in Leitrim um, as a young officer, uh, you know, there was, there was an officer who, you know, said, Hey, Robin, you're going to go to Bosnia, kind of watch me. You're going to go to NSA. You know, I, I have, I have had incredible, excellent mentors my whole career that they, I think they happened naturally. I think the rapports that we developed through working relationships just created, it wasn't an official mentorship, but, um, they, they mentored me in, in every way. And it was never, we sat down for a mentoring session. It was, Oh, Robin here, I recommend this or you should. Yes. I got some, you shoulds and that's fine. But those you shoulds have served me extremely, extremely well. I mean, most of those mentors, you know, were all, were all men. They were all wonderful officers who, you know, who, who gave me incredible advice and who gave me the platforms to excel, giving me those opportunity platforms to excel on. And I'm extremely grateful for that. It's so important. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's, it's great to hear that you've, you had mentors along the way. I'm not sure that's as common as it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, that's, that's a fantastic, uh, that's a fantastic outcome that you had, you had that support of people throughout, throughout your career. Cause I, I know that it's not something that everybody has, uh, and it probably allowed you to enjoy your work environment, you know, every day, you know, 30 years of, and you think like you said, you, you loved every minute of it yeah, and that yeah. probably didn't hurt uh, to have that, yeah. have that mentoring. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, I also think, you know, when you think about thriving, you think about an energy that, that you bring. And I like, you know, I think I have a little bit of a sparkle in my energy. <laughs> you know, sometimes you just need a little bit of sparkle in your day, a sparkle in your energy, something 
to bring some 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 goodness and uh, you know bringing a positive energy every day to work um, you know was probably when I reflect back on that too was something that I think I did most days most days hey Robin this has been fantastic and I'll I'll wrap things up here with the the last question I ask everybody if you have some recommendations for uh, educate entertain or elevate for the listeners. Yeah, so um, I, I definitely have a recommendation. And so this is by someone when I think about impact who has had, you know, an, an incredible impact on me. And I only met her, you know, in 2017. And it was when I did a women in leadership course uh, through Carleton University. It was a little professional development. Uh, well, it was a, a course uh, that they offer. And it's called uh, Own It. It's a book called Own It by Claire Becton. And so Claire Becton, um, if you Google her, she is an incredible trailblazer, an incredible Canadian um, out of the prairies. And she's been a trailblazer for human rights, a trailblazer for women in leadership, and so much more. And, you know, when I think about, you know, the last 30 years and, you know, those opportunities and those platforms to excel and, you know, I've never said this to her, but reflecting on everything, you know, she has created all of that maneuver space, I think, for a lot of women um, to excel. And so um, if you haven't read her book, it's a quick book, but it's an incredible read of her living in the heart of her being resilient and her becoming um, an extremely tremendous, credible lawyer with Harvard certifications. She's been part of the public service. Like I said, she has been a trailblazer for so many of our foundations in our Canadian landscape. So I think she's incredible. Awesome. Thanks so much for that recommendation. And uh, thanks again for being on the, the Northern Sentinels podcast. It was great having you here. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. I enjoyed it. You can find more information on NORAD and the Pathfinder Initiative, the Defense Innovation Unit, the NSA, and Robin's book recommendation, Own It, in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the Northern Sentinels podcast, and goodbye until next time. Mm-hmm.